Shall we now turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 25, verses, 1, verses 10 through 15. The first few verses of Exodus 25 deals with the list of materials that were gathered for the building of the tabernacle. From verse 10, we begin to see the building of the tabernacle. And we'll look at these six verses. Exodus 25, 10 through 15. This is the word of God. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it. And shall make on it a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles and the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark and they shall not be taken from it. That is the word of God for today. The ark of God, the first part dealing with the tabernacle. Well, beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, what was the tabernacle? Well, the tabernacle was a tent of meeting between God and man. It was a place of essential life-saving communication between God and his covenant people. A place of essential life-saving communication between God and his covenant people. But then you say, why would it be a tent? Why not a permanent building? Well, it wasn't a permanent building because the children of Israel were traveling from Egypt to Canaan at this time. And they needed something that they would be able to put together and take down quickly as they moved. A more permanent place was coming in that it would be the temple. But I use the expression a more permanent place because even that was not permanent. That temple was built by Solomon and it was destroyed uh, by the Babylonians. It was rebuilt under Zerubbabel. Then it was destroyed again. Then it was rebuilt under Herod. And then it was destroyed again in AD 70. So even that temple was temporary. The tabernacle and the temple were eventually replaced by Jesus when he came to directly communicate in that essential life-saving communication between God and man. In fact, the apostle John said that Jesus became flesh, and we, we use the word dwelt in our translation, but the original word was tabernacled among us, showing that this is the same picture of what was in the Garden of Eden when the Lord Jesus would meet with Adam and Eve in the evening of the day and then in the tabernacle and then in the temple and then Jesus appeared again. Now ultimately this communication will continue in heaven when everything is restored to the state of paradise when we will be confirmed in righteousness forever. Now, why look at the tabernacle itself in all these details? Some will say, we are under grace. We're not under law. We don't need those 
things from the Old Testament. Or, or others will say, I don't get involved with Old Testament stuff. I just love Jesus. More self-righteous statement I have never heard. Some even say the Old Testament is no longer relevant. My answer is this. Everything you see in the tabernacle points to the wonder and grace you have received in Jesus. It's all about restoring the relationship between God and man. Jesus himself said in Luke 24, he said the law, the Psalms, the prophets. That's the three categories of the Old Testament books. They all speak about me. And that's the wonder of it. That's the wonder. So we'll start today with the Ark of the Tabernacle. Why not the building? Because the Ark was the most important thing in the Tabernacle. We'll look at it under three headings. The construction of the Ark of the Covenant. The second, the carrying of the Ark of the Covenant. And then the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. Our goals are that you will see more of Jesus and his work. The one who lives in you and petitions for you to his Father in heaven. So that you will more passionately love and serve him. Remember the goal that God gave Adam and Eve in the garden. Was to fill the earth and have dominion for him. And this is what God does today. He restores us with the same goal of having dominion. That's why we sing Psalm 72. Christ shall have dominion. Well let's talk first about the construction of this ark. The ark was a box-like object made of acacia wood, which was a light and strong wood, a wood that's known for not rotting. It wasn't very big. The ark was about 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Now, what's the significance here? The fact that the ark was made of wood symbolized the humanity of Jesus. He was that tender plant that grew. We read about that in Isaiah 53. He was even that shoot that grew out of Jesse's stump. The picture again of Jesus being human. That's why we have two accounts of the humanity of Jesus from his father and his mother in the Gospels. You see, Jesus was man and he had to be man. He had to be fully man. But he also had to be a strong man, a determined man. One who would be willing to give his life for us. He even keeps his humanity today. Isn't that something? He took on humanity and keeps that form forever. Now the ark was overlaid with gold. Covered with gold the inside and the outside. Imagine the beauty there. And then there was a molding on the top. Which is likely like something to hold. A rim to hold the cover that will go on. We'll talk about that next. And you think what's the picture? Why gold? Why couldn't they use something cheaper? Well because gold speaks of divinity. The presence of God. The purest thing. The most desirable thing is gold. And Jesus was God. And he had to be. He had to be great enough to die for the sins of the whole world. So he was pictured by the wood. Humanity. But he was also pictured by the gold. Speaking of his divinity. 
Now, what was the purpose of this ark? The ark was a contact between God and man. And from there, the high priest communicated with God. Jesus is your high priest today forever. He is now your contact with God. Remember what that was like. The high priest would come in and sprinkle blood on top of the ark. And that's what Jesus does. He offers his blood before his father and say, that one belongs to me. You can't touch him. You see, this confirmed when Jesus died. Remember what happened in the temple? The veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. And that veil was not something to snicker at. It was about this thick, about four inches thick. And it was ripped from the top down, showing that this was divine work. And what did that mean then? It meant everyone could have access to God because the blood had been sprinkled. And now you have become priests under the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read a couple of passages to flesh this out some more. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 19 and 20. It says this. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Both sure and steadfast. Which and which enters the presence. That's the holiest place. Behind the veil. Where the forerunner has entered for us. Even Jesus has become high priest. Forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is our forerunner like John the Baptist was for him. He opened up the way for us to be able to go in. To have access to God directly. Remember that's where they communicated on top of the Ark of the Covenant. That was in the farthest part at the back of the tabernacle. Hebrews 10 verse 19 says, 19 and 20 as well. Therefore... Brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus and by a new and living way which we consecrated for ourselves through the veil that is his flesh. Through Christ, through his death, we not only can come, but we can do so boldly. And that's the picture we have here in the holiest place, in particularly dealing with the Ark of the Covenant. Now this ark had one thing we didn't talk about, this cover. This cover was also made, not just of wood, but of pure gold and sat on a molded ridge which supported the cover. What a beautiful thing, what an expensive thing, showing us that this was not something to look at very lightly. But it was a beautiful box. Now, what can we learn from this beautiful box, this ark that was there? Well, the ark pictured your salvation, the means of your salvation. It wasn't the magical box. You know, have you ever, many of you have seen the Harrison Ford movie from way back when, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It wasn't a magical box with all kinds of lights glimmering and all from it. It was simply a point of contact between God and man. Once the blood was shed there, the sins of the people were forgiven. Whose blood? Well, was really a picture of the blood of Christ though it was simply the blood of bulls and goats in the Old Testament but it represented the blood of Christ and God has always used the ark this way remember Noah their salvation from the flood was where in an ark you see that again in uh, Moses the deliverer of Israel in Egypt how was he saved he was put into an ark as well 
And that's why this picture is consistent in the scriptures of us being saved by the ark, representing Jesus and his work of salvation. Second lessons, the priest who is attending to your salvation is the one who will do it forever. All those priests in the Old Testament, and Hebrews points this out very nicely, they all had to make sacrifices for themselves. And what's the characteristic of all the priests? They all died. But Jesus Christ, the true high priest, continues to petition his father using his own blood. And he does it forever. Now, let's talk about the details about the carrying of this ark. Second point. The carrying of the ark. Well, the ark had four rings cast and installed in the four corners of the ark so it could be carried by poles on both sides. But these, uh, these uh, rings were most likely at the bottom because the ark had to be carried above the shoulders of the men who were uh, attending to it. However it was done, we know it was carried very safely and it had... The poles could never be removed, and it, the ark could never be touched by the ordinary people. Why was it essential to carry the ark the way God prescribed? Because the ark was a picture of the presence of God, and therefore it was holy. Only the high priest did so, and even he did it once per year. And he had to make sacrifices for himself first, and he had to sprinkle the blood upon the ark. By the way, you see why we have baptism by sprinkling. Baptism was properly done this way by Moses, by the priests and many others. We see this, the promise of God to sprinkle the nations. That's the picture of becoming clean, of being washed in a ceremonial way. Now what happened if they did not carry the ark in the way that God prescribed. I'm sure you know the story of Uzzah, but I'll, I'll read it for you just as a reflection. Second Samuel chapter 6, verse 4 and following, it says this, And they brought it out of the house, that's the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the Ark of God, and Ahio went before the Ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord and all kinds of instruments, of firwood, of, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. And when they came to um, Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the ox stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah and struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. You see, sinful man was never to come into contact with the ark that represented the presence of a holy God. So judgment had to be severe. No one dared to do so without their sins forgiven. You know, I thought about this because um, not too long ago I heard a Christian lady telling a Muslim lady who was sick, just pray and ask God to, to heal you. And I thought, how, how dare you do so? They don't have the real God. And you can't go to the real God without blood. The blood of Jesus Christ. To go and ask God to heal you is contempt. It's like your neighbor's child coming and saying, give me your house as my inheritance. 
You might mock that. Imagine a holy God being asked by someone whose God is the devil. Because all other gods are representations of demons, the Apostle Paul says. So you worship demons and you want me to give you healing? We're not to do that. We're not to encourage people. If you want to go to God, go and plead for the forgiveness of your sins on account of his son. And then work from there. And by the way, Jewish historians confirm that there were multiple high priests who went into the holiest place and had to be pulled out with a rope that was tied around his ankle. You know why? Because he did not make sacrifice for himself before he went into the holiest place. And so God killed him. So they had to have a sense of the holiness of the ark and not try to go close. What can we learn from this second point and how the ark was carried? First of all, remind yourself regularly how holy God is. He is the triple holy. We were hearing that song earlier. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Think about it. Think about the Sabbath. Think about how holy it is so you would not pollute it. You not do other things on it and expect God to bless you or bless the thing you're doing that is contrary to his law. Think about worship and how it must be kept pure so that you don't invite other things into the worship services that God did not want. Because you want to become more, um, what's the word we use these days? You need to be considering the feelings of others, the felt needs of other people. It doesn't matter what people feel they need. It's what God has said because worship is holy. You're entering into his divine presence. To introduce something is like to bring some other blood. It's like to bring a dog's blood or a donkey's blood instead of the blood of Jesus Christ. And think about these things so they are viewed in that holy way. Think about the name of the Lord. You should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You know what that means? Even when you're singing the songs and you're singing God's name, that you make an effort to think about who God is. Otherwise, you're just using it frivolously. Think how serious worship is then, isn't it? You know, we, we cringe when we hear people use, oh my God, without thinking about what they're saying. You say that's taking God's name in vain, and that's correct. But sometimes we can do it when we sing. We don't think about what we're singing. Think about the holiness of God. Think about the Holy Gospel so that you don't corrupt it and water it down. It's been amazing the fast decline of the church in the last 30 or 40 years in North America where the word of God is not looked upon as authoritative now. Even the atonement is brushed aside in favor of a moralistic gospel where Jesus' death on the cross was not an atonement for sins to please God, but rather it's viewed now as a moral picture for us. Imitate, learn to be sacrificial. In fact, the communists have used this as a means of promoting communism where they say, look, Jesus sacrificed for others. You need to pay your fair share, which is a code for stealing. But no, we have to think about the holy things of God. Never stop being holy. Second lesson. You must remind yourself of the work of Jesus, the shedding of his blood, which satisfied God. So you could approach God with confidence. There's no other way of coming before God. Yes, his blood was poured out for you. 
and you are now declared holy. So remind yourself, and having reminded yourself, the third lesson is this, then learn to pray. Pray in Jesus' name. No other name gets God's attention, none at all. Only one person bought you. Only one person fixes the problem with God. So we see the construction of the box, wood on the inside, gold on the outside. Not particularly big, but it's enough to remind us of the presence of God. And then we learn how this was to be carried. In other words, how they were to live with this box. They were not to touch it, they were to hold it in high regard. And then the third thing is the covering of the Ark of the Covenant. God required that the Jews make a mercy seat of pure gold. This place of meeting between God and man was often called God's footstool. And no one was to forget that. How do we know that? Because God told them multiple times. In fact, there are psalms that you're supposed to commit to memory and to sing and teach it to your children about this. Psalm 132 verse 7 for instance says, Let us go into his tabernacle, let us worship at his footstool. Psalm 99 verse 5, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool, he is holy. Even when things were falling apart in Judah. Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations 2.1, How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. He cast down from heaven to the earth the beauty of Israel and did not remember his footstool in the day of his anger. The frustration that God felt when his people walked away from worshiping him and instead worshiping the pleasures of the flesh and money in the bank brought them into captivity for 70 years on account of that. This mercy seat was beautiful, the blood was sprinkled, and peace was made between God and man. And man was never to forget that, to use that regularly. But over the ark where God dwelt were attached, we find this interesting last part here. Attached to the golden cover were two angels, cherubim. And these were made of hammered work. And they were made of one piece with the base. And why would you put angels there? Because God is often pictured as dwelling with angels. And we are often pictured as worshiping with angels. Let me give you a verse. Uh, Psalm 80 verse 1. It says this. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, who, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth. This is calling on God to shine and let his light shine upon Israel because they were going through a dark time. And there it was, the picture of God dwelling between the angels. Now, what do we know about these angels? Well, angels were not beautiful women as we often see angels pictured in society today. That's all something to think about when you look at your wife and you say you look like an angel. That's not always a good thing because angels are never pictured that way. They're always pictured as men. And by the way, I think it's three times in the Bible that angels are pictured with wings. They normally don't have wings. Only in very limited situations, always 
they appeared as regular people. These two angels were placed at the other sides of the box. Let's say this is the box here, the, the length of the box. One angel was here, one angel was here, and they were, the wings were opened out. You think, why? What's the significance of that? This meant they were, picture like they were covering the ark and watching over the affairs that transpired there, which is quite interesting. They're watching over what was happening. You see, angels were witnesses of God's mercy. And you have two of them because two witnesses confirm everything. Not just one angel, but two. More, angels joined with believers in worship. Remember the cherubim were told to block the gate of Eden so Adam could not go back in there. That was a picture of the holiest place where they communicated with God, where the Lord Jesus will come down, used to come down the evening of the day and have fellowship with them, communicate with them. But they were blocked by the angels. And by the way, you will see this picture fleshed out when you have the angels on the veil. They were designed on the veil to get back into the holiest place. You had to go through where the angels were watching over the people. Genesis chapter 3 verse 24. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden. And a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Angels are also pictured as protecting God's children. Even as they confess their sins. And this is why the wings are extended. They're ready for action. They're ready to swiftly do the bidding of the Lord to protect his chil children. That's Psalm 91. He will give his angels charge over you. So if you fall, they will catch you. And Jesus even promised to give his angels charge over his children. And he speaks of children, infants, having a charge of angels. Not one, not a guardian angel, but a charge of angels to gather each one. That's where we see our Baptist brothers are so terrible in condemning children to unbelieving state as if they had no hope. Well, the Lord sure showed his love for those children by saying he has a charge of angels for each child. Don't treat your children like pagans. Treat them as the covenant children of God. So that Psalm 91, learn to sing that song often. He'll give his angels charge over you. Remember the devil tried to misuse that when Jesus was on top of the uh, temple. And he said jump down. God will give his angels charge over you. He was warning of course there against contempt. But it's, he was quoting rightly from the psalm. Except he was misusing it. Now the angels had to be one piece with the mercy seat. And for the reason of this. There's a unity between God's grace and the evidence of God's grace. So the, the, the unity of God's grace is pictured by these angels being on top of this uh, cover on the box. And it's showing that that is where the blood had to be shed. So angels were witnessing the blood of Jesus Christ being shed for the sins of the people. So grace came from the mercy seat and the angels were the two witnesses. So what can we learn here? Construction first. Then the carrying, and now the cover of this Ark of the Covenant. 
Jesus is the cause and the means of God's grace to you. You're not destroyed as you should be. Remember Ephesians 2, 4. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. By grace. You couldn't go to the mercy seat and touch it. You'd be killed. When the priest, the high priest would sprinkle the blood. The people would be forgiven. Because they would believe in the coming Messiah. Second, with the blood of Jesus Christ shed, now you can boldly come to the throne of grace. Hebrews 4.16 Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find help in time of need. Boldly, of course, doesn't mean arrogantly. It means to come and pray with confidence. It means you have the right to pray. So pray often. Don't doubt that God will hear you. He has to hear you. He committed himself to hearing you. And he does not lie. Pray. Because you have the right to pray. You can't pray to the true God. If you are Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or anything else. But you can pray because you believe in Jesus Christ. Third. Angels continue to watch over you today. Even though you may not see them. God especially mentions his angels watching over covenant babies. What joy. It means we don't have to worry. You see what this does? That's the picture of the angels watching over what's happening. You don't have to worry about what will happen to the future. You know, you look at the future and think, it doesn't look good. Look at the cost of living. Will our children be able to afford a house? Will they walk with the Lord? How will they serve in the church? Don't worry about those things. Go about the work that God has given to you. The angels are watching over you and your children and your grandchildren. Have confidence in the God who has promised you forgiveness. Let's conclude. The Ark of the Covenant was constructed to represent the work of the Lord Jesus. Jesus himself and the salvation that he would bring. It was wood and gold to show the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. It was holy and could not be touched unless one had blood shed, the blood of Jesus Christ, whether literally or pictured for his sins. It was a place for man to meet God and receive pardon for his sins Showing he was adopted by God as well. So brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are three things for which you must rejoice. Rejoice because Jesus made peace one time for all times with his father for you. He was perfectly qualified to do it. And out of love he did it. Second, rejoice Jesus now lives in you and yet he is in heaven making intercessions for you so you not only so he not only lives among the people but he lives for the people there's no more blood that needs to be shed you don't have to kill any animals he did it once for all now, by the way this is the reason the roman catholic mass is such a wicked and abominable thing in god's eyes because they were attempting to sacrifice Jesus again. Third reason to rejoice. 
Rejoice because Jesus' blood that was sprinkled before God not only saves you, but your children and your neighbors and your enemies. So you need to tell them about the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, we sing and we will sing that song, What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, you have no blood with which to pacify God. Your blood will have to do. But your blood will only satisfy his justice. You, won't, you will not earn grace when you are punished for your sins. Because you will have to suffer eternity in hell. But Jesus' blood will satisfy God's justice. And because he was resurrected from the dead. Will give you grace. If you're not a Christian. Do you want that blood? To be counted as your blood? I hope you do. Let us pray. Thank you Heavenly Father for your words. Thank you for this beautiful picture. Of the Ark of the Covenant. How much it represented the work of our Savior. And how much joy it consequently brings us. Maybe not just rejoice and be thankful for it. But maybe share this joy with others. That others might hear and be drawn to Jesus. That their sins will be forgiven too. Hear us. For we pray in Jesus name.